we are using the parable of the nobleman who gave his ten servants each a large sum of money to use while he went off to receive a kingdom. And when he left, he told them, Occupy until I come. And he, inst- and he comes back and he rewards those who wisely used their assets. And he punishes the one who didn't. You know, in the Marine Corps, when a Marine stops work to salute a passing officer, the officer is supposed to quickly return the salute and say, carry on. Which means, thank you, but please go back to your work. And I like the word carry on because it's less literal than the engage in business, which is the, the, the phrase used in some of the, of the versions. And it says more than just take up space, like occupy. Uh, but whatever, all those terms will work as long as you understand what we mean here. Last week, Mark addressed this issue of occupying until I return with the issue of using your spiritual gifts until he returns. And, oh, I've got to say something about Mark. Where are you? Get back here. Mark, you were dead wrong. We have to, the elders have to keep each other accountable, you know. You're dead wrong on one issue, okay? Mark stood up here and with a straight face looked at us and said, he can't teach. (laughs) And then he proceeded to refute his own statement. Okay. Hard act to follow. Um, Of course, you remember in Matthew 5 that Jesus tells his followers to be the salt of the earth, to preserve the culture. And then he says, be light. You're the light of the world to expose evil and to shine the light on the cross. And so we can take these passages and we can assume that we're supposed to use our time, our gifts, our opportunities to be salt, to preserve the culture, and to be light, to expose evil and highlight the truth. And from these passages, we have to also understand that the gospel is central to our mission. However, if you haven't noticed... Those that call themselves Christ followers are not exactly winning popularity contests these days. Okay? Uh, You know, we're not subject to open physical persecution, certainly not enslavement. But within the culture, it's a bit like we're strangers in a strange land, kind of like exiles awaiting the return of his kingdom. Our situation is a bit like the situation that the prophet Isaiah addressed when he wrote from Jerusalem to the elders of the Jews in exile in Babylon, taken there by Nebuchadnezzar. Now, they had false prophets in Babylon telling the exiles 
that they wouldn't have to live out their full exile of 70 years as had been prophesied. And Jeremiah said, no, no, you need to live with that. And then Jeremiah relays some surprising direction. He says, thus says the Lord God of hosts. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, if the God of Israel sent Israel into exile, and we believe that God is sovereign, then we've got to conclude that He had them, and He has us, exactly where He wants us. Right in the middle of a corrupt society going downhill fast. Could it be that our loving Father has us here due to our own apathy and disregard for Jesus' teaching? He's put us in a kind of exile for our own idolatry of the world just as he sent his chosen in exile for theirs. Now, the exiled Jews were clearly living in more difficult circumstances than we are today. But he directs them not just to lay low and survive, but to conduct themselves in such a way that they bring about the welfare of their captors, even pray for them. So could it be that he's saying to us that seeking the welfare of our Rotting culture is what we should be doing today. If, God, if it, that's God's will for his chosen, forced from their homes and made slaves, what do you suppose we should be doing with our friends, acquaintances, public officials, and other people around us who do not know Christ and have a very, very different worldview? In short, what do you do with Jeremiah's words of seek the welfare of your city and the words of Jesus, you are salt and light, therefore occupy until I come. Now let me give you a, a little disclaimer up front here. If you've been here for any time, you know we are not talking about earning your salvation. Okay? Simplest way to understand this is that it's not by faith and your works that you are saved. It's by God's grace through your faith you're saved. And then the Holy Spirit prompts you to good works. So, the uh, first point we want to make here is that we need to use our individual gifts to do these good works together. And we do these for the purpose of building up and strengthening the local church as part of the larger body of Christ in order to strengthen that body in love. Paul gives us this mindset in Ephesians 4 when he says that God gave us many different gifts, quote, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith. This is all to bring us to maturity in the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, 
from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working together properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So today we want to talk about what we can do as individuals and as a local body to occupy, to seek the welfare of our city until Jesus returns. And we're going to start very broad and work towards specifics. And my goal is twofold here. First, we want to examine ourselves and our own attitudes which may affect our interaction with the world. And secondly, I hope we can start a discussion about how lion and lamb can be more effective as salt and light beyond certainly this message, but also beyond these walls. As members of the body, you each have gifts that allow you to see things that others, including leaders, cannot see. So we need every joint to supply whatever is needed to build up the body in love. So we invite your feedback on this whole issue. Another little disclaimer here. Uh, Mark came up with this series. It was his idea, and it was a fabulous series. Fabulous idea. But I may go a little further afield than anticipated my, by Mark here in my comments today. And you may wonder, why, are, why is he addressing these issues? And let me assure you, it's not because I see this as a big problem in Lion and Lamb. I do see the issues I'm going to talk about as problems within the culture, creating division, particularly between younger and older generations. And I seek a little lack of, I, I see a little lack of objectivity on both sides. What we need to encourage is a biblical perspective, taking into account all the factors, not just sound bites and slogans, so we can all focus on our mission. So the first thing we need to do is to develop a biblical approach to other people. We need to see people as Jesus sees them. That means we've got to strip away our bias and our prejudice so that we can genuinely draw them to Christ. And we hear a great deal today about cultures and subcultures. And really understanding culture is important on a number of fronts. First of all, what is culture? All right. Isn't it just what we learn is normal? What we pick up from our upbringing, our education, our surroundings, and our experiences? It can include traditions and celebrations, but it can also include general ethical standards, norms, and values. Some good, maybe some not so good. Okay? Think of my big fat Greek wedding. All right? There was a culture for you. Now, you can have different cultures on different levels, by countries, by, by regions, by communities, by faith groups, by age groups, even families. Cultures overlap, and so we have to learn to cooperate and tolerate one another. But the bigger point here about cultures is that they are extremely powerful and long-lasting. Not all, but most cultures take a while, perhaps decades, to develop in full and they may last for centuries. The longer it lives, the more persistent and controlling it is. You know, as an example, I want to address a practice that has persisted for many ages and through many cultures. And that is slavery and its aftermath. 
Now, I'm addressing this because it is a major stumbling block for some in our culture, especially the young. So much so that some are ashamed of our country and our heritage. These folks see, see slogans about the greatness of America as hypocritical. American slavery ended 150 years ago, but I'm going to argue that it still affects us today. First, to those who lean toward patriotism, in keeping with the concept of looking at the beam in one's own eye, we need to recognize and admit the sins of some of those who came before us, and perhaps ourselves. From a biblical perspective, much of the treatment of slaves and Native Americans was outright sinful. True, it is not a black and white issue. In many cases, strong African tribes conquered weak African, weaker African tribes and then found out it was more profitable to, to sell their captives to the buyers just off the coast. And it's true that some Native Americans brutalized some of the settlers. But we can't take those facts as justification for what happened thereafter. Much of the treatment of these groups was motivated by greed combined with sheer power. After abolition, the residue was racism and prejudice against minorities among many in our culture and was manifested in several aspects of our culture. Now, the Civil Rights Movement came along and it changed many of the laws. However, social pressure for reform mounted and the welfare solution to pay mothers not to have fathers in the home devastated minority families and basically weakened the whole institution of marriage for the culture at large. No matter how right-hearted the welfare system created to assuage the guilt for past discrimination was obviously wrong-headed and cruel in effect. It created its own culture of fatherlessness, of welfare dependency, of despondency, and lack of self-dignity. Predators preyed upon that culture and spawned various cancers of crime and drug abuse and sexual immorality and a neo-slavery called trafficking, a wholly dismal culture. These are the unintended consequences of slavery. Now, to those ashamed of our past and our country, let me first say that it's good and healthy to, make, to take an honest look at injustices past and present in setting the ship aright. But shouldn't we always consider the context of our history? I'm in no way trying to justify any evil here. But I do believe that there are some who are judging others in black and white terms without a full understanding. I'd like to ask those who react to slogans about greatness of our country just a few questions. If you had been born in another era or another land 
and raised and loved by a family and a community and a culture that saw slavery as favorable and certain ethnic groups as unfavorable? Do you think it might have affected your view? It's easy to sit here with 2020 hindsight and call slavery a clear evil. But is it possible that your upbringing can affect the view on any issue? So just as we must understand why that we have the struggles in the minority community right now because of what happened, we also have to understand the environment, the culture in which the discriminators grew up in. Just how ingrained is the practice of slavery? Pretty much the whole history of mankind. You see it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Certainly the, 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 the Jews suffered harsh slavery in Egypt. But in the New Testament, you see slaves as being basically members of the household. You remember that uh, uh, Paul wrote to uh, his brother about a slave named Onesimus. And he asked Philemon to accept back his brother in Christ as a slave. Uh, a very different relationship than we saw in the slave trade between Africa, Europe, and the colonies. Uh, many Europeans voluntarily agreed to serve as indentured servants uh, for a few years to pay their way across the Atlantic to the New World. In short, when you're talking about slavery, there are many different shades. Let me ask this, is it possible for people to do good things while not doing enough to stop, perhaps even acquiescing to evil within the culture? You know, before condemning our founders born into a culture where slavery was common practice, you might consider some things like abortion or human trafficking and what you're doing about those issues. Is it possible for people involved with good causes to do bad things? Now, some of my ancestors were involved with the abolitionist movement here in Kansas, and there's actually a record of a Vincent using his homestead to allow John Brown's men to, to do their target practice. Now, why did these good abolitionists who wanted to remove slavery need to hone their marksmanship? Okay, if you study the history of Bleeding Kansas, you'll find that some of those good abolitionists committed atrocities of their own. Finally, is it possible for people's attitudes about evil to change? Yes, founders like Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and John Quincy Adams owned slaves. Yet their views changed to the point of open and prolonged opposition. After serving as President of the United States, Adams went back to Congress and served for, I think, 18 years specifically to stop the slave trade. I ask these questions simply to get people to consider the effects of culture on what people think and do, not to justify anything. 
You know, some say that our country has never been great. Some say it's always been great. Clearly, it's had its own evils, its own demons. However, honestly, think about it. Have you ever found a better country with as much diversity? Instead of arguing over the meaning of a relative term like great, our job is, as believers is to work for a culture that is as Christ-like as possible. And to do that, we've got to understand cultural differences. You've heard people say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And, you know, that's generally good advice. You know, you, you want to avoid offense when possible, and you show respect for other cultures when you find yourself there. You know, Hudson Taylor found that he was never going to reach the Chinese with the gospel until he wore their garb and, and his hair as they do. Okay? But general advice always has its limitations. If by Rome you mean, you mean Rome in biblical times, and you were visiting there and your host asked you to visit a brothel or abuse a slave or worship one of their gods, you would not do as the Romans do. Okay? The point here is that the fact that something is cultural does not mean that it's right or that we should follow it. Now, in the very difficult debate about illegal immigration and refugees, much has been made of the threat to American culture. And to be sure, we look across the pond and we see European countries with whole neighborhoods where Sharia law is enforced and the police simply do not go. The European culture is being transformed before our eyes and it's not all good. Now, there are aspects of our own culture that have led to our freedoms. Our founders were mere imperfect men, but they happened to come up with a constitution that has provided a framework for more freedom and stability than any other nation that ever existed. Therefore, some tend to be pretty jealous of our country and its culture. Alexis de Tocqueville was a political scientist who studied American culture in the 1800s, and he famously said, America is great because America is good. But if America ever stops being good, it will cease being great. To paraphrase, what he was saying is, America is great only to the extent that it follows biblical principles. Therefore, the only culture that you and I need to fight for and defend is a biblical culture. Not a Western culture, not a patriotic culture, not an American culture. Now the two may overlap, but they're not the same thing. If by American dream, we mean he who dies with the most toys wins, that's not a biblical value. It leaves out caring for others. It's totally self-centered. And if we keep our, our focus on what Jesus taught, rather than what the world says, we're going to avoid all kinds of conflict, racial and otherwise, and we will have the most freedom and the best possible culture for all. So the, the point here is that, yes, there are cultural and subcultural differences, by our, but our focus has to be on the gospel and biblical principles. Don't make culture the issue. We can tolerate many differences and demonstrate love for other people. We can even celebrate diversity. 
with various subcultures within our culture to the extent that it is consistent with biblical culture. Okay. Who is this man? Anybody? Jesus? Everybody knows that. Right? Or could he have looked like that? As one movie producer suggested. Fact is, we don't know what Jesus looked like. Now, I don't think I could ever get used to a blonde Jesus. I'm prejudiced. Okay? But we have no photographs, and we have no specific description of his face. However, European Renaissance artists gave us their impression of what he looked like, and so now we all believe that Jesus looks strikingly well European. Yeah. Actually, we do have a very early image from the third century. The earliest known depiction of Jesus. This Syrian wall engraving depicts Jesus hearing the par- healing the paralytic. Huh. What happened to the long hair? And the apparent skin tone. Do you know what skin color Jesus was? Or Adam and Eve for that matter? I don't. The point is, what difference does it make? We all have the same ancestors. We're all the same blood. There's only one race, the human one. Paul helps us understand this biblical difference. In Galatians 3 where it says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For many of you, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to the promise. Now, when Paul said that, I think he knew the differences between men and women. Okay? And he would say that women are equal, but they're different. Okay? Let's be careful about what we're saying here. Paul would say that race and culture and heritage and living standards and gender and any other difference that we see with our eyes should not separate us as Christ followers. And those differences should not affect how we view the lost either. The very context of Luke 18, you know, the Occupy While I Come passage. Right before that, we see uh, the issue of another type of prejudice against the rich. Zacchaeus and his encounter with Jesus. And when Jesus talks to him, everybody looks at Zacchaeus and says, Why is he talking to a sinner, a wealthy man? But Jesus said, Yeah, rich people need me too and can be saved. Christy and I grew up in an exclusively white neighborhood and culture west of Troost Avenue in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, we had exposure to some different cultures, mostly Catholic and Jewish families. Uh, 
But if you know history, you know that there were racial tensions, even race riots in the 60s and 70s. Now, I don't remember any outright hatred or back-of-the-bus type treatment in Kansas City as there were in other parts of the country. But I have no doubt that I heard disparaging remarks, and it probably affected my views to some extent. At some point in time, we noticed that uh, west of Troost, we were all white. But east of Truth, it was predominantly black. We had no idea why, it just was. Now, most of you have seen the beautiful area called the Plaza in the, Can in the Kansas City area. And then if you go south, you see these huge mansions. And they get gradually smaller the farther south you go. And Christy and I lived a good distance south of the plaza. Okay. Uh, and that area was developed between the 20s and the 40s by a guy named J.C. Nichols. And history now tells us that Nichols was an expert. He was adept at restrictive racial covenants in deeds and in homeowners associations so that it was illegal to sell your home to a minority person. It's a complicated story and there are many factors contributing to the mess that was created in Kansas City, but it all started with racial prejudice and discrimination. Now, you never know how God's going to work. My, my dad was a, a lawyer in Kansas City and he represented and befriended the head of the local vocational technical school and gave us contact with several within the black community. Because of those relationships, Christy and I worked in uh, summer programs with inner city kids. Not nearly the exposure that my kids have had, but I am grateful that God gave us some exposure and experience that we would not have had had we stayed west of Troost. We gained invaluable insight and understanding of the cultural differences. There have been some positive changes among many, but racial prejudice is still there under the surface. In fact, we've almost come full circle. In the last decade, there has been a resurgence of public division reminiscent of the 20s, of the, of the 70s and the, and the 60s. Leftist neo-Nazis are opposed by leftist Antifa demonstrators burning the flag. And that creates a reaction among many in, in, in the impression that there's a civil war going on. This is not good. Now the church has done much to eliminate unbiblical division, but there's still much to be done to get to the point that Paul describes. We've got to avoid the tendency to react and instead apply what Jesus has taught us. This is another opportunity for the church, including us here at Lion and Lamb. Let's get down to some specifics as to how we can occupy and seek the welfare of our city. And the first is simply to be salt and light, uh, wherever you find yourself. Uh, a simple thing is to be Christ-like in your witness as singles or as families in our neighborhoods. Your mission field is all around you. We all have different situations that you can, you can find a way to be witness to those others living around you to be an example of what Jesus taught, always doing to them what you would hope they would do to you. We can be the ones who engage and encourage our neighbors. Uh, we've lived on the same block for over 30 years with some pretty diverse neighbors who have been there for many years as well. 
uh, and Chrissy has consistently reached out to all of them with gifts of cookies and treats and gospel tracts on holidays. It is her initiative that has kept our witness alive on the block. At work, you've got another opportunity to reach others. A great example is Bill Biter, who heads a state agency here. And Bill has been able to walk the fine line between leadership and witness by conducting voluntary Bible studies there in the workplace. And if you can't do that, you can at least be the person of faith, the religious person or whatever, that people might be willing to come to when they need help or they need advice. We need to reach out to our community. Now, I'm talking to a bunch of reachers here. My impression of Lion and Lamb is that it is comprised of an unusually high percentage of folks involved in serving. Lion and Lammers have given and served at the rescue mission, uh, youth ministries, prisoners, international students, human trafficking, pregnancy support, the pro-life movement, even government policy. We sent people out to, with the startup church over at Highcrest. We've hosted the annual Neighbors Night Out. These are all great ministries, all good. But the lion and lamb leaders have been having a discussion about what we can do with more of an outreach as a body. And certainly we're open to suggestions, but the thought that has been expressed is that different bodies have different gifts, talents, and ex expertise. <laughs> you see that look on Mike's face. Uh, Okay, how many have seen this movie? Anybody? Okay, well, let me, for those of you who haven't, uh, the three amigos are hapless silver screen heroes, but they get fired, and so in their desperation, they accept a job, they assume for acting, in Mexico. So they go there, and to their chagrin, they find out that they've been hired as real heroes to throw out real desperados from the local village. And they look around in panic, and they know they're not up to the job. And so they ask the villagers, is there anything you guys are good at that, that you're really strong in? And they look around and say, si, senores, we can sew. <laughs> and so they take them up, and they have them make, they put the seamstresses and the sewing machines to work, and they make costumes just like the three amigos have, so that when the desperados show up, it looks like there's dozens of amigos. And of course, the crazy scheme works. Not because of the fighting abilities of the amigos, because they use the strength of the community. You okay, Mike? <laughs> okay. Now, we've talked about what other churches have done, and we know we do not have the resources of other churches, but we do have strengths. We've got committed and loving believers who are serious about the Word, and we've got people who serve a lot. We've got imperfect but strong marriages, and we've got kids, young people, who are some of the best examples around. Now, that's a huge resource. So as an outreach to the community, we, we think we may, as a body, have something to share and help others with in preparing for and maintaining families, marriages, 
and in their parenting. Uh, you may be able to identify other strengths, and we welcome your thoughts, all for the purpose of building up the body in love. But the most important mission we have is the gospel. As Christ followers, while we occupy, we are called. No, we're commanded to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So, if you have an opportunity, you need to be able to explain to the lost graciously and in ways they can understand what is at stake. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that Paul argued, he explained, he proved, he spoke boldly, he pleaded, he expounded, he testified, trying to convince the Jews of the truth of Jesus Christ. The word commands us to be prepared with a defense, an answer, an apology for the, for the hope that people see within us with gentleness and respect. While the Christ follower, follower knows the truth by the Holy Spirit, she shows the Bible to a skeptical believer by clearing away the obstacles that obscure the vision of the cross. And those obstacles might include a perceived conflict between Christianity and science. It might be not understanding how a good God can let good people suffer. It might simply be not wanting to give up sin in one's life. More importantly, the believer dem demonstrates the character of Christ, the Beatitudes, by the way that she responds to adversity with patience and to the skeptic with grace and love. You know, there's no one way to respond to all the lost. You know, for the desperate sinner who comes up to you and say, why are you so joyful when things go wrong? You may have a green light to go straight to the gospel, and the Holy Spirit may be convicting in that point. If you engage an atheist who at least recognizes that there's got to be objective truth, you don't need to talk about truth. You may want to ask, what is the source of that truth? And what about a skeptic who says, he doesn't agree with anything you say. Maybe we heard about some who say, I don't care about any of this. You can ask questions and help them understand how their worldview doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's impossible to live that way. Now, this may involve revealing to him that we all have faith. You know, you might serve the devil or you might serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. Right, Mike? I didn't, my Bob Dylan impersonation is not very good. I can't crone like he does. All right. It may take time to develop trust, but eventually you must establish the desperate need of sinners for a Savior to satisfy the perfect justice of God. Finally, we must present the perfect love of God through the sacrifice and finished work of Christ on the cross and the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. Now, Scripture warns us to manage our expectations about the outcome of truth-telling. First, our job is just to clear the path and shine the light on the cross. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring faith into the heart. Secondly, know that the truth is uncomfortable 
to the world that has exchanged it for a lie. Even believers are prone to hide from the truth. The gospel is not politically correct, but the likelihood of conflict is no reason to withhold the truth. In fact, you will be blessed, you will be rewarded if you are persecuted for righteousness. Earlier, earlier we looked at Ephesians 4 where Paul exhorts us to speak the truth in love, to work together in order to make the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And Paul instructs us to proclaim that truth both inside and outside the church. But then in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul states emphatically, at one time, you, believers, you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So, we occupy by making the best use of the time we have, by being salt and light as individuals, and as a body by discipling those inside and sharing the gospel, the good news of Christ with those outside the church. The gospel is the highest and most scandalous truth claim ever made. That man, that God became man, he dwelt among us, and he died for our sins and rose again. To affirm it is to affirm not only the importance of its truth, but of all truth wherever it's found. As the worship team comes up, let me finish with this. Just before stating that he is the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, Jesus repeated one of these truths to his disciples. He told them that he was leaving, but he would come back to get them so that where he is, they may be also. So that we may be there also. That promise seems too good to be true. But praise God it is. It is true. He is returning with his kingdom. Our mission, seek the welfare of the city, make disciples and diligently occupy, carry on, with the work that he has given us until he returns. Lord God, we give you all praise and all glory. We know that you've given us a job here. We know you've given us everything that we need. We know that your purpose for us may be to win souls, it may be to, to cast out seeds, it may be to change the culture, it may simply be to try and fail, but you know what you're doing. We pray, Lord, that you would use us. Help us to see how we can best reach out, not only as individuals, but as a body to the world around us. 
clearing the path to the cross and showing them the love of Christ. We give praise and honor to you for all these blessings and for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.